Okay, so if you have a Bible, you could open up to Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. We'll take a look at that in a few minutes. If you um, are using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, that should be on page 870, right near the very end. So Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. You know, things are not as they should be. Don't you agree? When you look out at the world and you consider the way things are, things are not the way they should be. A young man loses his job for refusing to go along with some corrupt practices that his boss was pressuring him to do. He has two young kids. His wife is pregnant. They have few savings. A young girl with talent and promise uh, works and sacrifices her whole life to, to reach her goal, but in the end, the prize goes to someone else because the judges have been bought off. A politician tries his best to do what's right. He maintains his integrity. He serves his constituency, but his political career is brought to ruin and his reputation is destroyed because of a viral email full of half-truths and deceptions. A government slaughters thousands or, or millions of its citizens because they're of the wrong ethnic background or political or religious persuasion. Whole villages are raised, children are uh, pressed into slavery, parents are macheted to death in front of their children, women are raped. A massive earthquake levels a whole region. One day, families are, are quietly going about their business. They're raising children. They're making a living. They're laughing. They're loving. They're living. The next day, many of them are dead. Many others are homeless, penniless, starving, while the lives of the rest of us go on as normal. Things are not as they should be. God's own people pray prayers that, that don't seem to be answered. We claim promises and we wait and we wait and we wait for those promises to be fulfilled. Some of us in other countries are beaten and arrested and tortured and killed for no other reason than that we worship Jesus. Things are not as they should be. In response to these kind of disturbing facts, everyone asks why. But those of us who have faith also ask, how long? Because we believe in a good God. We believe in a God who is in control of the running of the universe. And therefore, we believe that one day, God will make everything finally right. Any novelist will tell you that a well-crafted story has tension, has conflict, has drama, even has suffering and tragedy. And, and as readers, we're okay with that as long as the ending is good, right? Because the ending gives the author a chance to, to make things right, to, to reveal the meaning in what seemed to be senseless suffering, or, or at least to raise good questions for us to ponder. But what about the real story of our life in this world? How will it end? For those of us who believe that this story too has a real author and that that author is con in control of how the story will end, we hold on to the hope that the story will end happily and that everything will be made right. Because 
We all have this inner sense, this, this inner longing for justice, right? Everyone does. We want things to, to work out fairly. We, we, we long for injustices to be redressed. We, we can tolerate or at least we can endure some trouble, some injustice in the middle of the story as long as things are made right at the end. This is the cry of the martyrs that we read about in the scripture this morning in, in Revelation nine or 6, 9 to 12. These are the ones who have been innocent victims of injustice. They've, they've given their lives to follow God as faithfully as they knew how. They've, they've done good. They've been a blessing to others. They've, they've remained faithful. And all they've gotten as a result was suffering and death. How can this be? Where is the justice? Why doesn't God come to the aid of the innocent, especially when the innocent are his own? Why doesn't God keep his promises? And so Revelation pictures the souls of these victims crying out in God's presence, appealing to the God of justice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And so it's against this backdrop this morning that we consider what the Bible teaches about the end of the story, about the final judgments, about heaven and hell. And here's what the Bible teaches. You can read about it in uh, Revelation chapter 20 as well as other places. It teaches at the very end of history that God will raise every human being from the dead. And every human being, great and small, will stand before the judgment seat of Almighty God. And we'll each there face the one who created us face to face and have to give an account for the life we lived and the choices we made. And the Bible is clear throughout that for everyone, whether they're a follower of Jesus or not, that this judgment will be based on what we have done, on our works, on our deeds. Let me give you a few scriptures. Romans 2, 5 speaks of the day of God's wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Also in 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, how can this be that we're judged based on our deeds? I mean, anyone who's been around CBC for a while knows that the Bible teaches that we're saved by God's grace, not by our good works, right? That's why Jesus had to die. He, he died for our sins. He paid the price for the judgment we deserve. So how can the Bible turn around as it clearly does and say that we're judged based on what we have done? Answer, we are saved by grace alone. The only way anyone survives God's judgment is because they have placed their faith squarely in Jesus Christ as the one who forgives their sins and gives them a righteousness and acceptable standing before the judge so that they're acceptable to God. But 
who does God extend this amazing grace to? Well, to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. But how does God know who has actually placed their faith in Jesus Christ and who just sort of said they did but didn't really mean it? Right? I mean, we, we've all met people who have a conversion story of how years ago they put their faith in Jesus and they call themselves Christians, but, but we don't see any evidence of it in their lives, right? I mean, Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, God will not be mocked. He can tell the difference between true faith and fake faith. And how does God tell the difference? Simple. He looks at our works. He looks at our deeds. Or as the Bible sometimes put it, he examines our, our fruit. How did Jesus express this in Matthew 7, 16 and 20? Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit by their fruit you will recognize them. So here's my picture of how all this works. Imagine a fruit tree. The soil is God's grace offered to us in Jesus Christ. God's grace is the only way that anyone is declared innocent and acceptable by God on the day of judgment. The roots of the tree are our faith going down into that grace into Jesus, clinging to Jesus, following him, nourishing ourselves on him as the only one who can save us. The fruit of the tree then are our deeds, our works. And the fruit never lies. Is the fruit good? Then the roots are good. The roots are, are, are down in God's grace. Our faith is rooted in Jesus, in his grace. Is the fruit bad? Then the faith isn't really there either. We aren't really putting our faith in Jesus and the grace that he gives. God is ingenious. God is infinitely wise. God knows on judgment day exactly how to tell who has placed their faith in Jesus and who hasn't. God just looks at our works. He looks at our deeds. The fruit tells the whole story. The fruit of our lives either shows unmistakably that, that, that we did have true faith in Jesus or that we never really did have that faith. We just said we did. So does that mean we should work harder to produce fruit, to, to make sure we're going to be okay on the day of judgment? No, it'll never work. It'll never work. A tree can't just pop out fruit no matter how hard it tries. But we can examine our fruit to get an honest assessment of the state of our faith. And if we look at our lives and the fruit is not there, then we need to go back and direct our attention to the roots. To sink those roots, to sink our faith deep into Jesus every day. And if we do that, the fruit will take care of itself. Listen to how theologian J.I. Packer puts this. He says, in the case of those who profess to be Christ's, a review of their actual words and works will uncover the evidence that shows whether their profession is the fruit of an honest, regenerate heart 
or merely the parrot cry of hypocritical religiosity. That's why the Bible encourages us to seek the assurance of our salvation, to examine our lives honestly, to see if we really do believe. Because if we look at our lives and, and we see fruit, we see growth, we see transformation over time, this gives us great assurance and comfort that we really are God's children. But if we look at our lives and, and there's very little fruit to show, or there hasn't been any fruit for a long, long, long time, then we can still fall on our knees before God in repentance and, and ask Jesus for his forgiveness and for his grace and invite him to give us a new heart and to teach us how to live. Because it isn't too late. There's still time. God's great day of judgment hasn't happened yet. And I want to give us just a minute of quiet now. Some of you may want to do that right now before we continue. I invite you just to pray silently. To examine your life. And if you sense that there's been very little fruit for a long time, maybe ever, you can come to Jesus right now and say, Jesus, I, I need a new heart. I need your grace. I need to place my faith in you so you can begin to, to produce that fruit in me and through me. Okay, back to that day when God makes all things right, when the scales of justice are finally balanced and all scores are finally settled, when the innocent are vindicated, the good are rewarded, the guilty are punished. And everyone says, ah, finally, things have been made right. God is just and right after all. On that day, Scripture teaches God will separate all people into two groups. Those who are his people will live with him forever because they depend in faith on Jesus Christ as the only one who can make them acceptable to God on the day of judgment and their fruits bear witness that they really had this faith. On the other side are those who are God's enemies who will be cast away forever from him in punishment because they depended on themselves and on their own efforts to win God's favor and they overestimated how good their goodness was and they underestimated how bad their badness was. But even with these two groups, Scripture insists some of God's people will enjoy greater rewards than others and some of God's enemies will experience greater punishment than others. And again, this is based on our deeds. On the positive side, for example, Jesus tells the parable of the talents in Luke 19, where one servant uses 10 talents to earn 10 more, and, and as a reward, he's put in charge of 10 cities. Another uses five talents to earn five more, and as a reward, he is put in charge of five cities. 
Also in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, Jesus comforts those who are persecuted for him, encouraging them to rejoice because great is their reward in heaven. On the negative side, Jesus warns the city of Capernaum in Matthew 11 that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. He also says in Luke 11 that the servant who knows his master's will and doesn't do it will be beaten with many blows, but the servant who doesn't know what his master expected and didn't do it will be beaten with few blows. So on the day of judgment, God, the just judge, will make everything perfectly right, giving each what they deserve. Every punishment will perfectly fit the crime. Every reward will perfectly fit the one who earned it. Now the word we commonly use to refer to the destination of God's people after that day is heaven. And the word we use to speak of where God's enemies go at the end is hell. So what picture pops into your mind when you think of heaven, when you think of hell? My guess is that, that each of us has a, a hodgepodge of images in our mind coming from popular culture, from popular religion, from far side cartoons, you know, all kinds of things, as well as from the Bible. And not all of these images are particularly accurate or helpful. So let's look more carefully at these two destinations. And I need to find the rest of my sermon because I'm going to run out of notes in a minute. So before we look more carefully at these two destinations, I'm going to just check my bag and see if the rest of my notes are in there. Two pages to go. Good thing I uh, thought to check. Okay, so we're looking at these two destinations. The first thing we need to distinguish is between the heaven and hell that we talk about when we talk about where we go immediately after we die. And to distinguish that from the heaven and hell, we talk about when we talk about where we wind up after the resurrection and the final judgment. Remember, we just saw that, that people don't get assigned to their ultimate destiny until after the final judgment and the final judgment doesn't happen until the resurrection at the end of human history. So what happens in the meantime when we die? Well the best biblical answer is that we don't know as much as we would like to know about this first scenario. But here's one thing that we do know. We know that those who die having placed their faith in Jesus Christ go to be with Jesus when they die. In Philippians 1.23, Paul says near the end of his life, he says, I desire to depart and to be with Christ. And because we know Christ is in heaven, it's safe to say that when people die to go be with Christ, they go to heaven. But this is not the same heaven in which we spend all eternity, as we'll see in a little bit. And that's about all we know about this first heaven that we go to when we die. We don't know whether those in this heaven recognize loved ones. We don't know whether they're aware of what goes, down on, goes on down on earth. We don't know whether they receive any kind of reward at that 
point. Because you see, when we die and we go to be with Christ, we go as souls or spirits without our bodies. And we're made to exist in bodies, right? It's our bodies which allow us to feel pleasure, to to see, to hear, to taste, to, to feel, to touch, maybe even to think and remember. But in the first heaven, we, we don't have a body. We, don't, we haven't been resurrected yet. And the New Testament is adamant that going to be with Christ we die when we die is not the ultimate hope that we look forward to. It's no doubt better than life down on this earth, but it's not what we're ultimately looking forward to. What we're looking forward to is our resurrection into the new heavens and the new earth. Listen again to J.I. Packer. Death is gain for believers because after death they are closer to Christ. But disembodiment as such is not gain. Bodies are for expression and experience and to be without a body is to be limited, indeed impoverished. That's why Paul wants to be clothed with his resurrection body, that is re-embodied, rather than to be unclothed, disembodied. That's in 2 Corinthians 5. To be resurrected for the life of heaven is the true Christian hope. A life in the intermediate or interim state between death and resurrection is better than the life in this world that preceded it. And as it is better than life in this present world, so the life of the resurrection, which comes after it, will be better still. In fact, it will be the best. And that is what God has in store for all of his children. Hallelujah. Well, then what about those who don't have faith in Christ when they die? About those we know even less. It's it's popular to look for answers here in the parable that Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. In this parable, if you remember, a poor beggar named Lazarus dies and is carried Um, by an angel to Abraham's side where he's comforted and he receives good things. A rich man also dies and is buried in Hades, and that's the Greek word that some translations translate hell there. Um, In Hades, the rich man is in torment and agony in the fire in this parable. Now, there are a few challenges with this story. For one thing, teaching us about heaven and hell isn't the main point of this parable. If you read the parable, the main point has to do with the rich and the poor, and who listens to Jesus and and who doesn't. Second, parables are are fictitious stories, and so we have to wonder how much the details of this parable are meant to describe real life, or in this case, real death. Third, this parable describes a scenario which is taking place before Jesus completed his saving work, before he died on the cross and rose again and ascended to heaven. And we don't know exactly what has changed since Jesus' death and resurrection in terms of heaven and hell. So there's a good bit of uncertainty here about what happens to those who die apart from Christ. What we do know much more about is what happens after we're resurrected and after the final judgment at the end of history. Here we're on much firmer ground. When we talk about heaven now, we're actually talking about a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth that God will bring into being for all those who have been resurrected to eternal life. And when we talk about hell now, we mean where everyone is going to wind up who has not been granted eternal life. So let's uh, start by looking at this final hell. 
You know, the Bible has a lot of images for this hell. It pictures it as a putrid garbage dump. It's called Gehenna. Full of maggots, slimy, rotten filth, smoldering fires. It pictures it as, as a big bonfire that burns up all the useful stalks and chaff after the harvest. It pictures it as a burning lake of fire and sulfur, maybe something like a huge lava lake. It pictures it as, as being locked outside on a dark night while a wonderful celebration party is going on inside. It pictures it as being in exile, cut off from the presence of a good king and his good kingdom, his people. It pictures it as, as being tied up hand and foot and being flogged and beaten. It pictures it as the second and final death. Now let me ask you a question. Which of these images is the literal, scientifically accurate description of hell? And which images are just figurative? In other words, if you had a movie camera and you went to hell to record what it's like, and then you came back and you played the recording, what would you actually see and hear on the screen? A bonfire? Lava? A dark street? Just blackness? A garbage dump? Again, we, we don't know. But we get the picture, right? <laughs> Let the images do their work on you. They're piling up everything bad that, that could happen to you, and that begins to give you a picture of hell. Now, one more point about hell, and that is that for those who go there, there's one arguably good thing about it. In fact, there's one aspect of hell which for the people who wind up there makes it, in, in a way, even more desirable than heaven. And that is that God is not there. Play, hell is a place where they can hide from God forever. A place where they can sin freely. A place where they don't have to humble themselves before the one they view as a celestial tyrant. The tragedy is that to be away from God is to be away from all the blessings of God and, and to lose yourself, to lose your identity, to lose your potential, to lose your meaning in the process. I wonder if anyone in hell will, will have any regrets about having not turned to God before it was too late. I, I wonder, on the other hand, if they'll be hardened and set in their anger and their revulsion toward him forever. I don't know. Well, what about heaven? Here, too, scripture gives us a lot of images. Heaven is pictured as, as a, a bountiful harvest that God brings in. It's pictured as being invited to a big wedding celebration. It's pictured as being the bride herself. It's pictured as having a room in God's big house. It's pictured as participating in a grand worship service with the angels of heaven. It's pictured as being a servant who is, is praised by your master and given a big promotion. According to Revelation 21 and 22, heaven is a new creation. It has rivers and trees and a glittering city with, with delight and beauty and glory. Again, it's hard to know what here is symbolic and figurative and what parts are literal, but we get the picture, right? <laughs> Scripture describes heaven by piling up every 
good thing about life that we can imagine. And here's probably the most important point. The point of heaven, as with the, the point of hell, is not the place itself. It's what happens there. Just like for a bunch of athletes these past few weeks going to London, the point wasn't just London. It wasn't like all those athletes just happened to have a lifelong dream of visiting Her Majesty's city and seeing Big Ben and visiting Trafalgar Square, right? No, the point of being in London was to complete, compete in the Olympic Games. The goal was the Olympics, not the city. I mean, the city got thrown in as a wonderful bonus. Well, the same is true of heaven. Granted, the place will be great. But the point isn't just the place. The point is the life that we live there. That's the point. Life as it was meant to be lived. A life in which we know God deeply face to face and are awed and overwhelmed and amazed at who God is. I mean, experiencing God will be, will be way more awesome than seeing the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or Disneyland or, or seeing your favorite band in concert for the first time or whatever you think is most awesome. God will blow them all away. And we'll know God's love better than, than any, better than we knew love could possibly be. We'll be caught up and, and join in in the love and the delight and the celebration that Father and Son and Holy Spirit share with one another and now with us as well. And we'll finally fully love and fully be loved by other people. We'll finally know and connect with, with loved ones deeply, intimately, like we always wanted to. And we'll be able to let them know us and it will finally be safe to do so. We will finally know fully also what we were created for, what our purpose is. And we'll know the pleasure of being that person and accomplishing that purpose. That's heaven. So as our KBT today states, at the end of history, God will make all things right and just and fair and will give us each a destiny perfectly suited to who we are now becoming. God could not have written a better ending to his story. Are you ready for the ending? Are you ready for your destiny? If you look at the fruit of your life and you're not sure, if you're not sure that you're really placing your faith in Jesus, then as I pray now, I invite you to pray too, if you're ready to do that. God, we approach this topic of destiny, of your end to the story where we all finally meet you face to face with great humility. Those of us who come out shining and glorious in that end only do so because of a grace we never deserved. God, thank you so much for sending your son, for making a way 
that you could be just, that you could make all things right and fair as we sense they should be, and yet at the same time you could love people and rescue them from eternal calamity and bring them into your pleasure and love forever. And God, if any of us here look at the fruit of our life and our deeds and our works, and we honestly can't say that we're coming to look more like Jesus, that we're becoming more loving, more patient, more kind, more fervent in our service of you, then, God, we... Um, we repent before you. We say that we're sorry. We admit that we can't turn the ship around by ourselves. But we look at Jesus and we cling to him. We invite him into our lives to forgive our sins, our mistakes, our bad and evil choices and to give us a new heart. Make us a new tree that can begin to produce good fruit. For the rest of us, encourage us with our destiny and renew our resolve to be more faithful, more fervent, because we know a wonderful reward awaits us at the end. In Jesus' name, amen.